the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about abortion and the Democratic Party. And then we're joined by the lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville, Chris Castaldo. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome here to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Excited to be uh, flying solo today. Uh, no guest co-host today. I will be by myself. Lots of great things to talk about. We are excited a little bit later here in the hour to be talking to Chris Castaldo, uh, pastor in Naperville. And Chris is the co-author of a book that I think is so timely and fascinating, especially around uh, the Easter holidays, and that is called The Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. So Chris is going to join us at, at about 420. Uh, would love to have you with us. Can you believe how absolutely gorgeous it is right now? Skies are blue. Weather, my I was literally driving home from a, a lunch meeting that I had, coming to do the show, and uh, the the thermometer in my car it said 68 degrees. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, it feels like two weeks ago we were in the negatives. And so just springtime in the Chicagoland, right? Take it when you could get it. Our producer, Debbie, and I, we were joking off air that, you know, we're probably a week or two away from a substantial snowstorm. But until that time comes, uh, we are just going to enjoy uh, the blessings of God today and enjoy the beauty of creation. And uh, hopefully, you take some time to get outside and enjoy it. But we're glad that you're spending some time with us today uh, as we just tried to say what's going on in the world, apply it to our faith, uh, try to give you some inspiration, but also challenge us a little bit. I want to start with some good news from NBCNews.com. It reads this, the vaccines are working. That's why we shouldn't panic about variants. Experts stress that the COVID-19 vaccines are performing well but that only heightens the need to lower stubbornly high case rates. And so uh, it says this, it talks about the variants, uh, but it says one thing experts agree on is that the available vaccines have outperformed expectations, even when it comes to what are known as variant concerns. Uh, and it talks about other variants that will probably pop up. But the, the headliner, the takeaway from this story is that experts agree that available vaccines have, quote, outperformed expectations. Can we just celebrate that for a minute? Like, I know that we love to argue. We want to argue about should you wear a mask? Should you not wear a mask? Should you social distance? Should you not social distance? Should you get the vaccine? Should you not get the vaccine? Like, I get it. Everything about COVID has been an argument and a fight, and uh, it, it's growing really tiresome and really tiring as we hope that, that we're going to kind of come out of this soon. But we all can celebrate the fact that expert after expert after expert is saying not only is amazingly the vaccine working, but it's outperforming even uh, what we thought it would do. That's really good news that 
that the president said the other day that whereas we thought everybody would be able to be vaccinated by the end of July, now it's the end of May. Just think about that, because this week we're coming up on one year. This week, it's going to be one year since all of life changed and everything shut down. And and again, it's just crazy, regardless of what you think, whether you think we've gone too far in the restraints, whether you're like, I'm never leaving my house again or any somewhere in between. Uh, the fact that it's been a year, all of our lives have been changed. Churches, schools, business, recreation, everything has been changed. We're coming up on a year. I think back then, back, I think a year ago when all of this started, and, and I remember having conversations with people in my church and my friends and other pastors going, I don't know, what do you think? Is this three weeks, four weeks? Are we going to be in for Easter? Are we going to have church? And I remember telling other uh, staff members at my church, I said, "Hi guys, I think we need to be ready for this to last even to June. Like it could get to that point. And now that we've been a year I do think that we need to lament and, and and recognize what we've been through, but then also go, man, God is good. And, and these, these vaccines are working. Like the book of Romans talks really about common grace, right? And that's often what we put under the umbrella of common grace. We put in uh, medicine and invention and other things. And I think these vaccines obviously fall underneath that. Like this is in some ways a modern miracle that these vaccines are not only working, but they're outperforming what experts thought. And we've kind of turned a corner. And so, uh, you know, obviously the experts are still saying be vigilant and all, but, but man, I, I can't tell you how excited I am that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that it's 65 degrees outside, that the vaccines are working and that we can maybe slow down from all the arguing right now and maybe go, man, that's good. That's just good news. And so I wanted to start there with some good news. Now let me swing to the complete opposite end of the spectrum here. And, and I did want to highlight as we get started a tweet from Ed Stetzer uh, from March the 6th. Ed is a friend of the show, had too many jobs to talk about. He's, he's all over the place. Uh, but Ed, uh, one thing I appreciate about Ed Stetzer is that he will give you, uh, he will be critical of the Republican Party. It'll be critical of the Democratic Party. And he'll put stuff out there that you know is going to get people on him. Uh, it's going to uh, cause people to be angry. And so Ed Stetzer was commenting to a uh, tweet from Senator James Lankford. Gen uh, Senator James Lankford uh, is a state of Oklahoma. US, uh, he's in the U.S. Senate. He's a senator. I can speak. He's a U.S. senator from the state of Oklahoma. And uh, uh, Senator Lankford said, funding during a pandemic should save lives, not take lives. Abortion funding should not be in the COVID-19 pandemic bill. This shouldn't be controversial. Because uh, apparently there's some uh, abortion funding and some stuff within the COVID-19 pandemic bill. Uh, and Ed Stitcher kind of went further on it and he even tagged uh, President Biden in it. And Ed Stitcher wrote this, he wrote, disappointing, dot, 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 but indicative of the extreme abortion focus that's been central to the Democratic Party for over a decade. And now includes President Biden, who vocally opposed government funding of abortion until this election. And I think Stetzer makes a really uh, fascinating point here. You can we can have debates about what is going to actually lower uh, the abortion numbers. Uh, you can make a make a case that it's uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. You can make a case that it's stricter ab abortion laws. You could also make a pay, uh, a case that it's universal health care. And I think all of those are worth discussing uh, that as people are brought have more access to health care, brought out of poverty, that the abortion rate goes down. But it. it 
it is sobering and sobering is not strong enough word. It is, as Ed said, infuriating, disappointing that the modern Democratic Party appears to be uh, more extreme than the Democratic Party of a decade ago was uh, when it comes to abortion. You might remember President Clinton said that the goal of abortion, I believe, was something like um, uh, safe and safe and rare or something to that effect. I'm getting the saying wrong, but the idea was let's make it as safe as possible, but put up programs and try to make it as rare as possible. And Stetzer links to an own article of his here where at the Democratic National Convention, uh, something passed around abortion and there was there was applause. There was people cheering abortion. And I understand there's a lot of people out there who said I, I would cheer that, too. And I just we can have that debate. But I think Ed makes a valid point here that there seems to be uh, a increasingly extreme view of abortion. Uh, as central to the Democratic Party. And uh, I've told you before on here, I had my problems with President Trump. I had my problems with, at that time, candidate Biden. But this is one reason uh, that we as Christians need to be vocal. Uh, we need to stand up for the marginalized. And there are a lot of groups, uh, a lot of people that can be deemed marginalized in our culture. One of those is the unborn. Uh, and so if our culture is going more extreme, or if a portion of our culture is going more extreme, uh, then I think that we as Christians need to be increasingly vocal and stand up. And so I appreciate Ed Stetzer highlighting that. It is indeed sad that abortion funding was part of the COVID-19 pandemic bill that was kind of passed in order to help people uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic. Well, we're glad that you're with us today. Coming up next, Chris Castaldo, lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville, also the co-author of the Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. Chris is going to join us for two segments here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on just a beautiful afternoon here in the Chicagoland area. Couldn't ask for much nicer weather today. Glad that you're spending a little bit of time with us. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, by somebody who's been on the show before. Uh, for He's going to join us for the next two segments, the lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville. That is Chris Castaldo. Chris, thanks for coming back, man. How are you doing? Thanks, Brian. It's my privilege. We're doing well out here in Naperville. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you about a bunch of different things. But before we get started, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Yeah, sure thing. Well, I've been here for uh, six years now uh, at New Covenant Church. Uh, I hail from Long Island, New York. So, oh. yeah, so I'm a minority group out here still looking <laughs> for a bagel store. Uh, but I have had found a pizzeria, thankfully. And uh, yeah, this this topic, you know, of how do we relate constructively and with gospel intentionality among our Catholic friends and loved ones is a question I face all the time as Absolutely. a pastor. Uh, quite a lot of Roman Catholics here in our town. And so, how do we navigate that with with grace and truth? Uh, that's become a, a central component of our ministry. It's such an important topic, and one I'm I'm excited to jump in with you. By the way, I am from uh, northern New Jersey, about 45 minutes outside New York City, and so uh, I totally uh, get your struggle, especially for pizza. So I'm going to need that number <laughs> when we get off the <laughs> off Gladly. the air here, because people don't understand the uh, the value of New York pizza uh, out right. here. I, I I definitely feel that way. Um, 
All right. So you do uh, specifically, you're co-author of a book called The Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. Like I said, uh, such an important topic out here. And let me ask you, this is a, might be a weird way to get us off here uh, on this topic, because here's a question I get. I, I am down in South Downers Grove, Darien area, which uh, I learned once we moved there is a very high uh, Catholic area as well. Uh, and I'll get people coming to our church. And this is literally what they asked me, Chris, are we on the same team? When you get that question about Roman Catholics and Protestants, how do you nuance that? How do you answer that as to whether we're even on the same team or not? Yeah, I will start by pointing out there's a great deal we have in common with our Catholic friends. Mm -hmm. uh, we both stand in the, the great Nicene tradition. So we, we confess this creed that affirms the uh, the life and activity of the Trinity mm -hmm. and the, the problem of sin and the coming of Jesus who died for our sin and was raised from the dead. And, um, and so we need to recognize that because sometimes, particularly among those of us who've come from a Catholic background and uh, maybe there's some bitterness even, you know, it's easy to, to look through a lens that sees the Catholic Church as entirely other. Mm -hmm. um, that's not accurate or fair. At the same time, there are, of course, some fundamental differences with regard to salvation and mm -hmm. authority. And that's what this work has sought to do is to clarify where those lines of commonality and difference fall. Uh, that's good. That book, again, is called The Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. So maybe a couple of them highlight for people, what are the, the major differences for people who are like, I know there are differences, but I'm not really sure where they lie. Maybe flesh out one or two of the main differences. Right. Well, in conversation uh, here, very often it's the topic of salvation. Mm -hmm. Why am I accepted by God? This was, of course, Martin Luther's question, right? Where can I find a gracious God? And very often, those of us who come from a Catholic background have this conception of the Father, which sees him sort of, you know, folding his arms, tapping his toe, waiting for us to get our religious act together. And um, and so you, you come to a place where you've heard the gospel and you discover that uh, our acceptance is not predicated or based on anything we do. Uh, it is rather grounded in what Jesus has done. And so that's one of those lessons that strikes at the heart of our difference and is also supremely practical. You know, it, it's yeah. what it means is on those days when I look in the mirror and uh, the person staring back at me is full of shame and guilt, I can remember that uh, the shed blood of Christ is the effective solvent for my sin. That is, it commends me to God and secures his favor. So that's perhaps the, the the most significant lesson that I find myself talking about. Yeah. And, and you and I were talking beforehand over email and you mentioned, you know, with Easter coming and conversations happening around, you know, now it's COVID kind of loosens, hopefully around dinner tables or amongst families. And as we celebrate Easter, how would you even approach this topic? Like maybe you're in a, in a family where, you know, half the family's Catholic, half the family's Protestant. How do you have constructive conversations around Easter without it becoming, you know, adversarial, if you will? Right. Well, so often that's what it becomes, I'm afraid. You know, we year after year, we approach uh, Easter dinner and we're, we're praying for doors to open to express the, the hope and the life of Christ. Uh, but it's so easy for that train to go off the rails. Yeah. And so I think the most important thing is for us to approach it with the right mindset. And I would define that by 
what it says in John 1.14 of our Lord Jesus who came, and the wording is, full of grace and truth. You know, these are the twin virtues we must uphold. We need to be gracious. We need to reflect the, the mercy and the kindness of God. Um, and that means being respectful and listening. Uh, and at the same time, we need to articulate the truth. Uh, we, we can't be so open-minded that our theological brains fall out of our heads, you know, and we lack all integrity. And so finding a way to uphold both aspects of that calling, I think, is, is a necessary starting point for our witness among Catholic loved ones. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking specifically about the evangelical church and the Protestant church. Uh, you know, was it a year? I don't even remember how long ago it's been now, maybe a year since we had Mark Galley famously came out, the editor of Christianity Today, and, and quote unquote converted to Catholicism. What what do you sense as you've done your studies and talked to people? What is the draw for people leaving the evangelical church, going to the Catholic church? Because it seems like such an enormous change, right? Like right. Uh, such a big difference. As you've talked to people and interacted with people, what is the draw that causes someone to make such a big shift like that? Right. So there's movement in both directions and mm-hmm. uh, quite quite a few people who have come out of the Catholic Church, but then um, also those who have chosen to identify with the Church of Rome. You know, um, I have had those conversations. Very often it's the liturgy. It's mm. the it's the, the textured history uh, that includes, you know, a range of different practices in the context of worship. Um there's also what uh, Bishop Robert Barron calls the via pulchritudinus, the way of beauty. You step into a cathedral and, and you get a sense of God's transcendence. Mm. You know, uh, the Catholic Church showcases that quality of God in ways that you don't often see in, in evangelical circles, you know. Yeah. And, and so and then, you know, you could talk about the robust moral theology. It's not an accident that we have you know, several Supreme Court justices who are Catholic. Uh, none who are evangelical Protestants. So, you know, those are the reasons you hear, uh, all of which are are significant. Um, and so I think that's where we have opportunity to listen to our friends, to acknowledge that these are gifts that the, the Catholic Church has to offer us. You know, even as evangelical Protestants, we can learn valuable lessons and at the same time elucidate what we understand the Bible to teach with regard to salvation and why that needs to be made personal in the lives of our Catholic friends and loved ones. That's really good. That other voice here is Chris Castaldo, lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville. He is also the author of Justified in Christ and the co-author of The Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. Such an important topic. And Chris, uh, continuing that conversation, uh, we were talking a little bit off air about now, sometimes uh, this conversation we're having about Protestants and Catholics kind of mirrors the the disunity of our country, right? Republicans and Democrats, uh, people who believe in masks, don't believe in masks. And, and we live in a very divided uh, culture that oftentimes is full of anger and yeah. full of uh, rage. How is it that that as Protestants and Catholics kind of work this out, that that we really have an opportunity to model a unity or even a uh, a loving disagreement well for our culture. Right. Well, you know, one of the insights that I think is helpful is that when we talk about the good news of Christ with someone, we're never addressing ideas or doctrines directly. We are speaking to a person 
who upholds particular ideas or doctrines. Mm-hmm. So we need to take into account the assumptions and the, the obstacles that might be in the way. You know, so I'm talking to my cousin Vinny, who's coming from a, a very specific place, um, to understand the influence of his uh, ethnic experience and his personal story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which again doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, fudge on the truth, but but we do want to explain it and apply it in a way that is personal. So as that's true in in this context of Catholic Protestant conversation, I think you're right, Brian. I think it applies to the larger conversation in society. So what I would suggest is make a friend, you know, who's mm-hmm. different. Uh, I went to the local parish here and befriended their one of their leaders and um, would get coffee and it was it was incredibly fruitful. So in our neighborhoods, what if we uh, went out of our way, you know, to l- understand the the person whose lawn sign happens to be different from ours during mm-hmm, election time? Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a great deal of fruitfulness that would follow. Oh, that's great. Let me jump in on something you said there about how you went to the local parish and befriended one of the leaders and began to get together with them. Uh, how do you think this through? Like, where can where should churches and Catholic churches, evangelical churches and Catholic churches be holding hands? Where should they kind of like, hey, we're going to agree to disagree here and maybe also speak to the value of what you just touched on as pastors connect with, you know, Catholic leaders and the fruit that comes out of that? Yeah. So I think it's helpful to distinguish what happens in a local church in terms of preaching and teaching and discipleship. You know, you and I as pastors, Brian, are going to ensure that the the individuals bringing leadership in those ways uphold the particulars of our church's belief. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are a number of issues that have to do with understanding different traditions or uh, understanding how we as as Christians engage in culture. So, for example, uh, a few years ago, we had R.R. Reno, who's the editor of First Things Journal, come and and speak at our church mm-hmm. on the topic of marriage. You know, so it wasn't Sunday morning, but it was uh, in the evening, and we had two Catholic voices and two evangelical theologians, mm-hmm. and it was a rich time yeah. of understanding, you know, what are the challenges and opportunities before us in this cultural moment, and how can we address them as thoughtful Christians? So I think that distinction is helpful in order to maintain our integrity, but also be the, you know, the winsome witness yeah. uh, that we want to be. Yeah, I think that word winsome is is so important and something so lost in our in our culture. Sadly, you know, oftentimes in our church cultures right now and something we need to reclaim. I do want to ask you every time we have a pastor on, uh, I do want to take the opportunity just to kind of ask, hey, we're like a year into the COVID-19 pandemic, which is an unbelievable thought. Uh, And so I wonder how this past year has been for you personally as a pastor uh, what have kind of been the highs and the lows? And what's what have you seen in your church? What, is, what has it been like in your church throughout this time of pandemic? Right. So many people are hurting right now, are isolated, are struggling with mm-hmm. uh, depression. Uh, ab- the, the instance of abuse has skyrocketed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the challenge, of course, is that in general, we're, we are unable to be among the people of God uh, mm-hmm. as, as we'd like. And so what we've done here is um, we've created two services, first of which is entirely masked. Second is partially. So folks oh, okay. arrive with masks, they sing with masks, they depart with masks. But otherwise, when they're listening to the preacher, they're welcome to take their mask off. For us, that was a significant step forward 
because it created a space in which most people were comfortable. You know, um, that was important. But but in addition to mobilize elders and other leaders to visit congregants as much as possible, and uh, you know, the dead of winter, that's a little harder to do. Yeah. Yeah. But to at least follow up and ask how they're doing and and have the conversation, we have found that to be essential. Yeah. And what do you think we've learned about the church, Big C Church? What have we learned about the church when so much has changed uh, in this in this COVID time? And and maybe another way of asking is, how do you think the what are the things you think are going to be foundational going forward? And maybe what are some things that we won't see that maybe were part of the church before? Yeah. I think we've learned consumerism is a problem, mm-hmm. you know, and so the the online services have been a blessing, but like all churches, you know, we've seen a segment of our congregation who just are no-shows, and uh, it's really hard to know what's going on there, and I'm sure you, you feel the same way I do, Brian, yes. where there's this fear that they're just, they have their you know fuzzy slippers on uh, on Sunday <laughs> yes. morning, and maybe they're watching, maybe they're not, but that's the extent of it. So true. On the other hand, we've been encouraged because so many people have come because we've had gathered service and have said, we need to be with the people of God. And it has been such a pleasure to to meet them and develop relationship with them and, and see that same spirit of unity that makes the church so beautiful uh, at work, even under these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, w- I want to give you a chance as we close up here to speak a little pastorally. Uh, there's people listening right now who, you know, we talk about how is the church changed, but all they know is that their own life feels like it's crumbling, Either, whether it be loneliness or loss of job or just you know, life being hard over the last year, let alone health issues. So I wonder if over our last minute, minute and a half, you could just speak a word of hope uh, pastorally to the people out there who are really struggling right now, really doubting and really just wondering how they're going to get through. Yeah. I had COVID at the beginning of February. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, the, the symptoms were mild. What I wasn't prepared for, though, was the melancholy, frankly, of being isolated. It took me by surprise. And for several days, I was really in the existential depths of it. And um, during that time, I had a chance to think and pray. And because we're studying Acts right now, Mm -hmm. my mind went to the Apostle Paul. So here's the great apostle, right? And he's taking the gospel to the world. And as he's, he's doing this ministry... He is he is getting uh, pummeled <laughs> wherever he goes. Yeah. yeah, and yet in the midst of that pain and anguish, the kingdom is advancing. The spirit is is working through him to change lives, and he is experiencing an intimacy with Christ that defies our comprehension. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that this is normal. This is the crucible of faith in which we're called to live, which isn't to minimize pain, but it is Mm -hmm. to say there is hope in the midst of our pain. Oh, Chris, that's such a good word. I'm I'm really grateful for you. Again, that's Chris Castaldo, lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville. You guys are right at what, 75th in Washington? Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes. Big, tall steeple, one of the biggest ones going. So uh, (laughs) New Covenant Church in Naperville. If you don't have a church, go check them out at 75th in Washington there in Naperville. Also the co-author of The Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. Chris, also, let me give you his website real fast too, chriscastaldo.com. That's chriscastaldo.com. Chris, I really appreciate it, man. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. My privilege. Thanks, Brian.
Yeah, have a great day. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today, got no co-host, but I am excited that tomorrow and Thursday, I'm going to be joined by Steve Koble. Steve has guest hosted with us before, uh, but Steve is a teaching pastor, I believe, at Renewal Church of Chicago. Love having Steve in here, and uh, you're going to want to have, Steve's going to have a lot of great things to say, so hopefully uh, you will join us tomorrow and Thursday. Steve will be in with us, and then I'll be flying solo again on Friday. That's kind of the plan here for the rest of the week. So if you're in the Christian world, you know the name Tim Tebow. So Tim Tebow, former quarterback, Heisman Trophy winner, national champion, uh, former quarterback for a couple different teams, most well-known for uh, the Denver Broncos. But Tim Tebow is also just a uh, besides being uh, from the outside, uh, just a good human being, uh, Tim Tebow is a very vocal, um, a very vocal follower of Jesus. And that's one thing that has kind of uh, rubbed people the wrong way, but also endeared him to others. And so I want to play something that I was watching. I was on Twitter and I saw uh, that Tim Tebow posted something that he said. It's about a minute 20 uh, long. And, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to it. And then I want to come and talk about why what he said is so important. Let's give it a listen. And you know, I want to make that choice daily to believe that we serve a really big God because our God wasn't done performing miracles 2,000 years ago. He wasn't done using people 2,000 years ago. He uses them today. He, use, he will use you today. And sometimes we think, but God, what do we have to offer? What do I have to offer? You are that offering. Everything that you have, whatever you have, your time, your talent, your treasure, your resources, all of it, that's what you have to offer. A lot of my favorite stories in the Bible are of of people that you would think, man, that person's not going to be the hero. But in the Bible, because our God is so countercultural, he uses those people, the people, oh, there's no way he would use this person. There's no way he would use Paul to to write two thirds of the New Testament. He was killing Christians. But our God is a God of grace, a God of second chances, a God of redemption, a God of restoration, and a God of using people that have messed up and have fallen short because we get to team up with the one person that hasn't fallen short and never messed up and never made a mistake. You see, in that relationship, we don't have to be the MVP because we have the most valuable player, and his name is Jesus. And he came through for us. But for some reason, we get to be called co-laborers with him on the same team. All right, so again, that is Tim Tebow. And and I found that so encouraging for a couple different reasons. Uh, The first is, uh, I think he really highlights an important fact that that the God who was at work 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, Uh, is the same God at work today, that we believe in a big God, Uh, that he is, uh, the the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that, uh, and so we could go back into the Old Testament. We could go back into the New Testament and A, uh, be encouraged that God is still at work, that that hasn't changed. And he didn't just check out somewhere along the way here and be like, yeah, I'm done. I'm kind of tired or don't really have to do anything anymore. And so I think that's an important point that Tebow brings up here. And secondly, that just at, like when we read the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament, God has always been in the business of taking really ordinary people and doing extraordinary things. 
that uh, think about Moses, think about Joshua, uh, think about King David, think about Peter, think about Paul. Uh, he is uh, in ordinary people, extraordinary things. And I think that's what Tim Tebow is getting at here, because many of us, we look in the mirror and we go, what could God ever do with my talents? How could I ever be used to not just not change the world, but but affect a life or to make a difference in my kid's life or my neighbor's life? And and, and I found this to be really inspirational when Tebow, when Tim Tebow said, uh, my act of worship, my offering is myself and uh, that I have time and talents and treasures and resources. And that that is what I have to offer to our God. And that God is still in the business of taking our time, our talents, our treasures. And in, in a way that blows our minds, he takes men and women that we could never believe that God is going to use that person in a powerful way. Like, like Tim Tebow pointed out there that, uh, that he used the Apostle Paul. Have you ever thought about this for a second? Like, let me just, let's take it back a little bit. The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he wasn't just a, um, he just wasn't against Christians. He was killing them. He was overseeing the persecution of them. What does it say about God? That he goes, you know what? I'm going to use that guy. I'm going to use him in order to start a movement that's going to change the world. Like, doesn't that kind of feel like God's showing off a little bit? <laughs> like he's going, look at what I can do. He could have used anybody in that moment. He wasn't like, oh gosh, I guess I got to use salt. No, he's like, you know what? I'm going to make a point here. And, and I feel like that so often we can look in the mirror and go, I'm not impressive enough. I'm not, um, God could never use me. He uses the person who's funny or well-spoken or gets on a stage or can sing or is mag magnetic personality or whatever else it might be. And we kind of shrink back and go, I'm just going to, you know, go day by day. I'm going to get through the world. I'm going to go to church on Sunday, but I'm going to have pretty low expectations of what God can do in and through me. He used a bunch of fishermen. He used a tax collector. He used the guy who was killing Christians to start a gospel movement and change the world. He used King David, a shepherd boy. He used Moses, who Moses said to God, Please don't send me. I'm, I, I stutter. I don't speak well. I need someone to come speak for me. Time after time after time. It's not just that God uses and works through the least likely people. It's also, it seems to be that he also rarely chooses to work through the most uh, credentialed. He still does. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's this thread that we see throughout Scripture. That says, no, it's not about us. It's about him. And, and that God is still in the business of doing more than we could ever ask or imagine. And that he calls us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to be willing to go and make disciples, to be his ambassadors. And just how in the book of Acts, it was his Holy Spirit at work. So now it's still about the power of his Holy Spirit at work. It's not about what I can do. I'm not the one charged with changing lives. I'm the one charged with making myself uh, open and, and, and giving myself as an offering to him. And God still does amazing things. He does extraordinary things 
through ordinary people. So I'm thankful for what Tim Tebow had to say there. I think it's just inspirational. It's just helpful. Uh, and I'd uh, love to know what you think. Give it a watch. Give it a listen. Uh, and then we will uh, go, go to our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show at Common Good Talk. You can find it there. We would love to know what you think. Well, coming up next, a fascinating article from Tim Keller, founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church at The Atlantic, says, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. That's Tim Keller coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, a phenomenal article by Tim Keller, and then we're going to look at the recent post from David French. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today on what is probably the most beautiful day we've had in months. What an absolute gorgeous day. Saw my kids outside in shorts today playing, uh, which eh, might have been a little bit excessive, but... Uh, it's just gorgeous. I'm hoping that you had a chance to get outside, enjoy the weather a little bit, because as we know, things can change very quickly in the Chicagoland area. But as for today, and I believe tomorrow, uh, we've got it. We've got spring. So let's just enjoy it while we can. Hopefully you're having a great day, uh, enjoying God's beautiful creation. Well, I wanted to spend some time, and if you if you would let me uh, I want to read a lot of an article from The Atlantic, and here's why. It was written by Tim Keller, and if you know Tim Keller, uh, if you know of Tim Keller, you, you know that on our show here, we speak so highly of him. Uh, Ian and I, uh, both while Ian was on the show, love to talk about Tim Keller because I feel like he is humble and brilliant, and I tend to resonate with a lot that he has to say. Tim Keller recently retired, but he was uh, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He also uh, speaks all over the world and writes incessantly. And so Tim Keller, when he tends to write something or speak, it's someone that I listen to. Uh, Tim Keller was also diagnosed last year in the midst of COVID with, I believe, we're going to get to a pancreatic cancer, I believe. Uh, and so he wrote at The Atlantic. And I think that's important also to point out where this is at. This isn't at Christianity Today or Christian Headlines or Religion News. This is at The Atlantic. And Tim Keller wrote the other day, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. I spent a lifetime counseling others before my diagnosis. Will I be able to take my own advice? It's a long article. I am going to read a bunch of this, so stay with me. And uh, But not maybe not the whole thing. And we'll stop along the way. He said, I've spent a good part of my life talking with people about the role of faith in the face of imminent death. Since I became an ordained Presbyterian minister in 1975, I have sat at countless bedsides and occasionally even watched someone take their final breath. I recently wrote a small book called On Death, relating a lot to what I say to people in such times. But when, a little more than a month after that book was published, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I was still caught unprepared. And he talks about how he found out in the midst of COVID that he had cancer. And he said, I spent a few harrowing minutes looking online at the dire survival statistics for pancreatic cancer, and I caught a glimpse of on death on a table nearby. I didn't dare open it to read what I'd written. My wife, Kathy, and I had spent much time in tears and disbelief. We were both turning 70, but felt strong, clear-minded, and capable of nearly all the things we have done for the past 50 years. Uh, 
but now I've been diagnosed with this illness. I began to feel really old. This couldn't be. What was God doing to us? The Bible and especially the Psalms gave voice to our feelings. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Wake up, O oh Lord. Why are you sleeping? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? A significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed, he writes, when they learn that they will die at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. Before my diagnosis, I had seen this in people of many faiths. One woman with cancer told me years ago, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. Cancer killed her God. What would happen to me? I felt like a surgeon who was suddenly on the operating table. Would I be able to take my own advice? One of the first things I learned was that religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. A belief in God and an afterlife does not spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. Despite my rationale, uh, conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, uh, despite my rational conscious acknowledgement that I would die someday, the shattering reality of a fatal diagnosis provoked a strong psych psychological denial of, mortal of mortality. Instead of acting on Dylan Thomas's advice to rage against the dying of the light, I found myself thinking, what? No, I can't die. That happens to others, but not to me. When I said these outrageous words out loud, I realized that this delusion had been the actual operating principle of my life. He went on to quote Calvin and Ernest Becker. And he says, death is an abstraction to us, something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality for the same reason. He says our beliefs about God and an afterlife, if we have them are often abstractions as well. If we don't accept the reality of death, we don't need these beliefs to be anything other than mental ascents. A feigned battle in a play or a movie requires only stage props, but as death, the last enemy becomes real to my heart. I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart, or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life gripping truths or be or be discarded as useless. I want you to think about that line, man, theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life gripping truths or be discarded as useless. I've watched others, many others partake of this denial of death and then struggle when their convictions evaporate and not just among the religious. I spent time as a pastor with sick and dying people whose religious faith was nominal or non-existent. So when the certainty of your mortality and death finally breaks through, is there a way to face it without debilitating fear? Is there a way to spend the time you have left growing into greater grace, love and wisdom? He says, I believe there is. And it requires both intellectual and emotional engagement, head work and heart work. He says, I use the term head and heart to mean reasoning and feeling, adapting to the modern view that these two things are independent faculties. Uh, and so he's going to go on. I wish I could just have time to read this whole thing. He's going to go on to talk uh, about his own struggle, but saying that we need it in our head and in our heart. And let me jump all the way down to the bottom. There's so much to this. It's so good. To our surprise and encouragement, my wife, Kathy, and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with the demands impossible for it to fill. We have found that the simplest things from sun on the water and flowers in a vase to our own embraces, sex and con conversation bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. 
This change was not an overnight revolution. As God's reality dawns more on my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. I can listen to this line. I can sincerely say without any sentimentality or exaggeration that I've never been happier in my life than I've uh, that I've never had more days filled with comfort. But it is equally true that I've never had so many days of grief. One of our dearest friends lost her husband to cancer six years ago. Even now, she says she might seem fine. And then out of nowhere, some reminder or thought will sideswipe her and cripple her with sorrow. Yes, but I've come to be grateful for those sideswipes. Because they remind me to reorient myself to the convictions of my head and the processes of my heart. When I take time to remember how to deal with my fears and savor my joys, the consolations are stronger and sweeter than ever. That is Timothy Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, author of countless books. Uh, I just can't... Uh, encourage you enough to go read this whole article. Death is something that we will all face. It is not some existential thing. Uh, it is something that is, it could be imminent or it could be decades down the road. Uh, but Tim Keller says, as he has preached about it and spoken about it, it wasn't until he got his own diagnoses that it became very real to him. And he said, uh, I've now through the work, I've become uh, more content and happier and also more grief stricken all at the same time. It's such an unbelievable uh, thing for Tim Keller to say. So thanks for letting me read a bunch of that. Go to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page at Common Good Talk and go read Tim Keller's article there at The Atlantic. Well, coming up next, two different stories I want to talk about. One from Julie Royce about a new IRS rule about nonprofit salaries. And then Ravi Zacharias Ministries made a, a big change the other day in light of all that's been going on with them. You're, we'll talk about those next here on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. A beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Baseball is coming. In fact, yesterday, word came down from both the Cubs and the White Sox and the city of Chicago that the Cubs and the White Sox will be having 20% capacity from opening day, starting on opening day, and that as the year progresses, they hope that it will be more than that. I wonder if you out there... Uh, are are planning to go to games if you're offered tickets or if you're just not ready to do that. Gosh, if I got tickets, I would go in a heartbeat. In fact, if anybody has any, I'm just kidding. I don't think I'm allowed to do that, but uh, I, I would go in a heartbeat. I'm so looking forward uh, to seeing baseball again in person, to seeing sports again in person. Uh, my family in a couple of weeks, we're going to go to Arizona for a couple of days just to hang out as a family, a little get out of town. Uh, we're going to go to the Grand Canyon. And one of the things is we got tickets to a White Sox uh, uh, preseason game, spring training game. And my son and I, especially, we're just like, OK, even though we're going to sit apart from people and be in masks outside, that's fine to be in the ballpark and hear the crack of the bat and to be in the ballpark and get a hot dog, like all the stuff that we took so for granted until a year ago when everything shut down. And now we haven't been to games in forever. We haven't been to movies. Uh, the local movie theater here in Downers Grove called the Tivoli just announced that they're about to open at the beginning of April. All of these things starting to happen, not uh, just feels like spring has sprung and there's some hope out there. And so uh, hopefully 
uh, all of that is good news. And and I'd love to get to man, get to Wrigley or to U.S. Cellular or what's it now? Guaranteed rate. Get there one of these days uh, to see a Major League Baseball game. Oh, can't wait. Cannot wait. Well, uh, I wanted to talk about two articles that are uh, have to do with uh, some some things within the evangelical, within the Christian world. The first one's this. This is at the Roy's Report from Julie Roy's, but it's written by Barry Bowen. Uh, Barry Bowen uh, is a researcher and a writer with the Trinity Foundation. And the headline reads this. <clears throat> Churches and other nonprofits must report salaries over $1 million due to new IRS rules. The article goes on to say churches and other not-for-profit organizations must now report salaries and parachute payments over a million dollars due to the new IRS rule aimed at discouraging excessive compensation, uh, which was recently finalized. In its February 16th bulletin, the IRS announced an update to Section 4960 of the Internal Tax Code taxing nonprofits and churches that pay covered employees more than one million dollars in wages or provide excessive parachute uh, payments. When these employees receive more than $1 million in wages, the nonprofit must file a new form. The nonprofit must then pay a 21% tax on the excessive compensation. The top five, the five top paid employees of nonprofits are typically listed on a form 990. Uh, churches are exempt from filing 990s, but they are not exempt from reporting excessive compensation. Uh, Trinity Foundation examined a list of the highly paid compensated ministry leaders uh, and and found uh, he, that they that there are people making this amount. Uh, so it talks about the excise tax. And for example, of this would be a ten point five million dollar parachute payment to Jerry Falwell Jr. That happened uh, and some of this. I don't know why I found this interesting. I think here's why I found this interesting. Am I naive to say that I was I was like surprised to find out that there was more than a few people in the ministry world who make this type of money. Like, I, I, maybe, maybe I, maybe you're like, maybe you're just laughing in your car going, man, how naive are you? Uh, but I'm looking at a list of nonprofits and there are like, uh, there's seven people on this list making north of a million dollars a year. Uh, and the president and CEO of the inspiration networks is making three point three point two five million dollars. Uh, and you just go down this list and it is uh, it is something, people. There's some money to be made out there, apparently. And uh, yeah, so I, I got no problem with this. I don't think that that law was put into place uh, to cover just excessive and, and fine, make what you can make. Right. But but there comes a point where, uh, you know, like other people, you do need to pay your taxes. And so uh, maybe you disagree with me. I am not an economist. And so I think the biggest reason I wanted to bring this up is because it just surprised me uh, that there were people making this sort of money. I can tell you uh, most pastors right now are not. <laughs> so I'd uh, love to know what you think. The second story is out of Christianity Today. Ravi Zacharias Ministry plans name change, calls for more victims to come forward. Review of Ravi Zacharias International Ministry Leadership and Culture expected to take months but the late apologist teachings are coming down now. Let me read some of this article out of Christianity Today. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, in the midst of an outside review of its corporate culture and past handling of abuse allegations, has announced it will change its name. It's also calling for additional victims to come forward and report sexual abuses and harassment by its late world-famous founder. Last month's investigative report confirmed allegations against Ravi Zacharias and uncovered additional evidence of abuse continuing up until a few months before his death 
in May of 2020. But while the investigation was conclusive, it was not comprehensive. So in a statement released over the weekend, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries acknowledged there may be more victims. This is the first time that RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, has directly asked victims to come forward. The consulting firm Guidepost Solutions will field reports by phones while victims advocate uh, Rachel Denholander Denholander will serve as a confidential liaison. Uh, It says, uh, we continue to grieve deeply for the victims who have been treated in ways that are completely antithetical to the gospel. We also painfully and increasingly recognize organizational failures that have occurred and the repentance that needs to take place in both heart and action. Painfully, that was written by the CEO of but Sarah Davis, who is also Zacharias's daughter. Oh, that's hard. Uh, Davis said the review is comprehensive and is expected to take months. Layoffs are expected soon. Here's an amazing thing, too. The ministry also announced that it is removing Zacharias's teaching from its website and social media. The 12 international branches of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries are independently evaluating their own ministry cultures and future plans. And so the article goes on. It's such a sad story. One of the parts of this article just says international reckoning. And that's really what's going on here. Uh, it's it's just really sad uh, to be reminded what, what's what's worst part of this story, right? The worst part of the story is the women who were victimized. Uh, and the, unfortunately, the lengths of the victimization are only now coming to light. And it seems extensive. Uh, and and we should be that should grieve us. That should anger us. Anybody out there who's trying to make excuses for Ravi Zacharias. And I don't know anyone who's now currently doing that. But if you are like, yeah, but he was such a great teacher or yeah, but yeah, there, there's no yeah, but in this. The, the guy did sinful, uh, reprehensible, abusive things. And you can't say you can't you can't differentiate, in my opinion, his writings and his teachings from his character and who he is or who he was. And so there was a lot of problems with the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And uh, I guess I want to say I want to kind of cheer him on for taking his name down and taking his content down. Uh, that's painful. That's really painful. This was a ministry built around Ravi Zacharias. And this has to remind us that there is no, um, you know, th- there are, we, we got to be careful when we exalt human beings and say, man, look at him, look at her. Uh, because we set ourselves up to being disappointed when they fall or if they fall or when they fall. Uh, and this is yet, this might be the most graphic and most, uh, the biggest one, but it's not the only one. Uh, and so it's only our God that we worship, right? And so, uh, again, another part of the chapter of this sad, sad story uh, that seems to be changing. Well, I thought those were two important stories that came out yesterday. Uh, wanted to highlight them for us. Coming up next, we're going to read from the blog of one of our favorite authors, one of our favorite blogs. That being David French, he spoke. He wrote this, The Spiritual Problem at the Heart of Christian Vaccine Refusal. Why are so many white evangelicals reluctant to consider the health of their community? That's going to be a controversial one from David French. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, in by myself today on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. One of our favorite authors, going back a long time ago, or I should say writers, uh, is a guy by the name of David French. He writes at his blog called 
French Press, which is a phenomenal name. Uh, David French lives down by now where Ian is down in Nashville, but David French has been in the news a lot this year because uh, he has been vocally uh, anti-Trump and trying to call evangelicals who support Trump to task. And he, for that, has become quite a lightning rod. I was listening not to a Christian station the other day, but to a just a political talk station. This was about a month ago, and I was just amazed that that they spent uh, a whole segment just ripping apart uh, a person. And then all of a sudden I realized not on, but just talking. And then I realized, Oh, they're talking about David French. And uh, I personally really appreciate David French. I tend to resonate uh, with a lot of his, uh, while he's a Republican, he tends to be more moderate uh, and he, and he tends to have some problems with our, with the past administration. And so, uh, but David French, you might love him. You might hate him, but he writes really good stuff. And he wrote this about the vaccine. He says, I have some good news and some bad news. Let's start with the good news. He says, because the news is very good across the United States. Vaccine hesitancy is going down and it's going down relatively fast. For example, according to Pew Research Survey, 69% of Americans have indicated that they've either already taken the vaccine or will definitely or probably take it in the future. That's up from 60% last November and way up from the low of 51% in September of 2020. And the Pew Survey isn't an outlier. Yahoo has a very similar finding. All this is good news, but it needs to continue to accelerate. So what's the bad news? The bad news, according to David French, is that vaccine hesitancy breaks down sharply along partisan and religious lines, and that hesitancy is so profound in white evangelical communities that it could disrupt the quest for herd immunity. On a partisan basis, white Republicans are among those least likely to take the vaccine. For example, he then gives a chart from a place called YouGov. But it gets worse. When you dive into the Pew data, you discover that white evangelicals are less likely to say that they will, quote, definitely or probably take the vaccine than members of any other American religious group. And it's not even close. Only 54 percent of white evangelicals will definitely or probably take the vaccine. The next closest numbers belong to black Protestants and religiously unaffiliated Americans at 64 percent. By contrast, 67% of Catholics will take the vaccine and a whopping 90% of atheists. I don't know. There's a story there. Uh, And then he says it gets worse still. He said white evangelicals are the least likely to say they should consider the health effects of their community when making a decision to be vaccinated. Only 48% of white evangelicals said they would consider the community health effects, quote, a lot when deciding to be vaccinated. Given these stark statistics, French writes, if there is one thing that readers should take away from this newsletter, it's that evangelical vaccine hesitancy is both an information problem and a spiritual problem. Yes, you can and should flood the zone with more and better information about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. But we also need to flood the zone with better and more effective spiritual teaching about loving our neighbors and critically about trust, faith and courage. French goes on to say first about trust. Unless you are in the impossibly tiny minority of people who fully understand the science of the vaccine, we're all trusting somebody. The question is, whom are we trusting and why? In conversations about the vaccine, he writes, I've heard a number of people declare I'm just less trusting than you. In reality, these people still trust. uh, They just trust claims and assertions elsewhere, either from a favorite Internet voice, a local pastor or a Bible study full of close friends. Uh, There's a hostile and condescending way of approaching the different way we trust. And so he goes on to talk 
uh, about trust. He said, this approach requires us to listen, to hear exactly why someone is concerned and to respond without condescension to their fears. In that atmosphere of trust and respect, you'll often find that you can easily allay their concerns. In this newsletter, I've often quoted my friend and seminary professor Curtis Chang. He's put together a video series making the biblical case for Christians to take the vaccine. It's empathetic and it's outstanding, he said. For example, he links a video link to should pro-lifers be pro-vaccine, he says. But there's also a deep heart level issue that is besetting elements of the evangelical church. In part because of grifting culture warriors and in part because of the challenges and temptations of our own fallen nature, millions of Christians have confused selfish defiance with faith and moral courage. This means, for example, that all too many people believe that the refusal to wear a mask in appropriate settings is a sign of their personal fearlessness. It's a declaration either that they have faith that God will protect them from the disease or that they don't fear the consequences of catching the virus. Yes, it's yet it's well established that the primary purpose of wearing a mask is to protect those around you more than to protect yourself. Translated into the vaccine setting, and in fact, anti-masking activists are forming alliances with vaccine opponents. He says many people now see the refusal to take the vaccine as a concrete demonstration of their own courageous assertion of individual autonomy. In reality, they are often yielding to fear. And when they yield to fear, they are endangering themselves and others. Thus, the sad consequence of large-scale rejection of vaccine uh, may well be entire communities and towns that suffer needless sickness and death. Even worse, the Washington Post reports, the greater the unvaccinated pool, the greater the playing field for the virus to replicate and mutate. Honestly, he says, we may never persuade a person that a vaccine is safe to the point of certainty. We may never persuade a person that he or she can take a vaccine with total confidence, but we can perhaps persuade people that taking risks on behalf of others should be a cardinal Christian characteristic. It should be a key task for Christian leaders to uh, in- inculcate, inculcate, inculcate uh, an ethic that over time radically transforms the, num- the numbers in the Pew survey one that places evangelicals not just at the top of the charts in their willingness to take the vaccine, but also at the top of the charts in considering the health of the community of their own neighbors when making a choice to take a shot or wear a mask. Americans, even America's evangelical Christian communities, he writes, are often full of the most radically generous people you'll ever meet. Uh, just watch my Southern Baptist friends activate when a natural disaster strikes. And they're hardly the only ones. At the same time, however, in the arena of law and culture, All too many Christians are adopting a posture that says, don't tell me what to do far more than how can I serve you? And his last paragraph is going to say this. One of the truly immense tasks of spiritual formation isn't so much communicating the truth, but preparing a heart to receive the truth and respond accordingly. That's why the core of the quest to persuade Christians to take the vaccine is personal and spiritual more than it is scientific and informational. If every Christian can read and understand the biblical reality that, quote, greater love has no one than this, then they'll lay down their life for his friends. Then we can also understand the lesser love. That sometimes we need to trust to take a small risk and to take a shot, not just for ourselves, but also for our friends, our family, and the country that we love. That's David French. And I understand that for some out there, if you made it through that at all, that infuriates you. So I'd love to know why, because French there is making this point. He's saying that that it's one thing to not trust it for yourself, but but what about the posture that says, uh, I, I need to be about my neighbor? And the greater good, the common good. 
And what does it mean to love our neighbors uh, in this idea of taking the vaccine or wearing a mask or whatever else it might be? Where do my rights and freedoms and personal desires intersect with that of the community? And what is the Christian posture here? Uh, David French takes a really strong stand here, and I'm guessing there's more than a few of you who disagree with him. That's what makes for good writing. So uh, we would love to know what you think. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we are going to end the show with a little bit of inspiration uh, from Tim Challies and a a blog post he wrote recently. That's how we're going to end the Common Good up next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Friends, welcome to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. It's been fun to be with you by myself today, uh, but I am excited that tomorrow and Thursday I will be joined by Steve Coble. Steve has guest hosted on this show before. Uh, Steve is going to join us. He's the teaching pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. Uh, Steve is just uh, a great guy to have on. Lots of great thoughts from Steve. So be sure to join us tomorrow and on Thursday. As we've been doing over the last year now, as we close out the show, we like to do so just kind of with some, whether it be good news from the Good News Network or inspiration or information, something to to leave you going about the rest of your day, just thinking and something to make you just kind of go, okay, I'm going to consider that. And uh, that that's something we've been trying to do here as we end our shows, because there's so much uncertainty around us, right? A lot of you are feeling that uncertainty of COVID, what maybe it's uncertainty of your health, of your job, of just normalcy of life. Uh, will things ever get back to normal? And we, we want to kind of encourage your faith, make you think, and kind of leave you about your day. And so with that in mind, Tim Challies, who is just a great writer, a blog that he writes, just Challies, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S, Challies.com. He has his blogs are there's a reason they fly around and many people read them because they're just so well written. And I want to end by reading his latest one from March the 1st entitled uh, Which Christian Best Portrays Christ? He begins with the story of an elderly man uh, unable to travel, but being a man of some means, he hired a number of skilled artists and dispatched them to the Rocky Mountains because he wanted to see the Rocky Mountains before he died. To each of them, he gave the orders to bring him a painting that would display the beauty of the Rocky. So he is un- he's unable to go, uh, but he wants that. He says one painter made his way to Banff National Park to rise above Morin's Curve. Uh, another one went to the uh, Yellowstone to portray the heights of towering Mount Washburn. Uh, and he goes on, uh, each artist painted his scene, titled it Rocky Mountains, and on the appointed day, brought it to the patron. From his bed, the man surveyed this great collection of paintings and with tears in his eyes, commended each artist for each had done well. Each had faithfully interpreted his scene. Though no artist captured the whole, each was faithful to his part. Before the old man slipped beyond this life, he was content that he had seen the Rockies. Christians are called to be like Jesus, to make a careful study of his life, of his ways, of his character, then to portray him on the canvas of our lives. The world will not see Christ, but they will see Christians. So we labor to faithfully portray him. Yet just as no artist can portray all the Rockies, Chalice writes, no Christian can portray all of Christ. We're too weak, too frail, too short-lived too marred by sin. And so 
Just as the old man knew to dispatch many painters, God knew to save many people. Just as each painter portrayed a small part of the great Rockies, we portray our small part of the great Christ. Each of us, though we live 60 or 80 years in the service of Jesus, cannot come close to imitating all of his perfections. We make progress, he says, to be sure. But often as we increase in one area, we slip in another. Often as we emphasize one trait, we decline in another. And even in our greatest attainments, an honest assessment will show that though we have come far, we still have so long to go before we are perfect, even as Christ is perfect. Chalice is going to continue. It must be for this reason that God gives each of us a special burden for a different path. Though one artist is convinced that the Rockies' best beauty is to be found in Banff, another will say Yellowstone, still another Jasper. Uh, None of them is wrong. And just so, some Christians are drawn to Jesus' kindness as the most beautiful of his traits. They could think of no greater epithet than he was a kind man. And they labor their whole lives to be as kind as the Savior. Others are drawn to his boldness in the face of their opponents who try to lead sheep away. And those who labor to show their ability to speak boldly as truthfully as Jesus. Some emphasize his love for friend and foe. Some his joy in the face of adversity. Some his endurance in suffering. Some his generosity in hospitality. Some his care for the neglected and the downtrodden. In the end, Which of these Christians best portrays Christ? That's the question. In the end, which of these Christians best portrays Christ? Is it the one who is kind as Jesus? Is it the one who teaches like Jesus? Or the one who extends his warm welcome? The truth is, Chalice writes, is all of them and none of them. All of them capture the part God has assigned to them, but none of them captures the whole. For the subject is simply too vast for any one canvas, for any one person. The closest view of the whole is when the many are gathered together into one gallery, each displaying its small part. We might imagine that as the old man surveyed his collection of paintings, a quarrel broke out uh, among the artists, each insisting his work was superior because he alone had chosen the most representative place. Yet Banff is as much the Rockies as Yellowstone and Yellowstone as much as Jasper. Each went to the spot he was drawn to. And who's to say peaks are more beautiful than valleys, sunrises than sunsets or summers than winters. Each of the artists honored their patron if they went to the place their hearts led them, then used all their skill and all their talent to create an accurate likeness. And in much the same way, we have no right to pass judgment on another man's character when his portrait of Christ differs from our own in its emphasis. Rather, we must understand that as Christ has gifted us all differently, he has burdened us all differently. He has seen as much in that other person as in us. And Chalice closes this way. And so each Christian labors to be like Christ. Though each of us labors to be like the whole Christ, each of us is burdened in a way to emphasize a particular part, aspect, or trait. Each of us carries out this labor on behalf of our divine patron, on behalf of the God who has saved us to himself and who has called us to imitate the son. Though none of us will ever capture the whole on this side of glory, each of us can be confident we receive God's well done if we are faithful in our part and joyfully encourage others along as they are faithful in theirs. So beautifully written by Tim Challies. And I wanted to close there for a couple different reasons. Sometimes we put this pressure on ourselves that like, I must be the embodiment of all that is Christianity and I must display it to my friends and neighbors. I think Challies makes a beautifully written picture. It says, you know what? 
we're all gifted in certain ways. God has burdened us in different ways. Some of us are going to be caring while others are bold. Some of us are going to be, um, you know, uh, you know, we're going to be prayerful while others are uh, evangelistic. It doesn't mean we don't grow in all of these aspects, but but we're each going to together make the complete picture. And, and I find that to be really encouraging. Okay, I don't have to be everything to all people at all times, but that I can display a, a portion of who Jesus is uh, and, and that people can get a glimpse of, of, who, of who Jesus is by looking at me, but they're not going to get a glimpse of the entirety of Jesus. I don't have that ability, <laughs> nor, will, nor do you. But I also love how we talked about the gallery that the best way for to get a picture of the Rockies was to line all the pictures up by each other in the gallery. And I couldn't help but read that and not just think of the church. And they go, what is a beautiful picture of Jesus? And that is all of these little representations of Jesus, all of these ambassadors of Christ, all of these uh, Christ followers together in community, showing a picture to the larger community out there of like, hey, yeah, all of us together begin to give you a glimpse of who Jesus is, a glimpse of his grace, of his passion, of his boldness, of his forgiveness, of his love, and all of that. And again, this is yet another beautiful picture as to the value of the church. And so if you're out there right now and you're like, oh, I'm just a failure. I, I don't do a good job representing Jesus. Continue to grow, continue to strive, uh, but don't put that burden upon yourself that I am going to be the only picture of Jesus somebody gets. Newsflash. We're never going to be great, full representations of Jesus. Uh, but people get glimpses of our Savior as they rub up against us, the Christ follower. And for that, we are thankful. Well, that's great word there from Tim Challies. Thanks for joining us today. It was good to run solo, but I'm glad that tomorrow uh, Steve Coble will be joining us. Uh, looking forward to being with Steve. We hope you have a great day on this beautiful uh, Tuesday uh, evening. I hope that you're able to enjoy this weather a little bit before the day closes out. Well, we hope that you do have a great day. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.